Coco always wanted to have a baby. Coco would have, I think, been an excellent mom and that we might have seen teaching by Coco, direct teaching, and that she just loved, loved, loved wanting to have her own baby. That's just natural. And that we would have just so much more learning about her nature and the nature of the transmission of language. Penny had always hoped that there would be a second generation of gorillas with Coco's sign language ability. Now, that would be an amazing legacy for Project Coco. But the problem was, Coco hadn't found a gorilla that she wanted to get it on with. There was Sweet Michael. Coco? Just Coco? Coco. She's biting. No. Even after years of living together, they just don't do it. Hey, listen to me. Coco, what are you doing to Mikey? She's just not that into him. Don't you bite Michael. No. So Penny tries to find other suitors. Another male gorilla for Coco to mate with. Which is actually kind of hard to do. Are you looking for And she comes up with an idea. Hi, my name is Phil. Uh, Most of my friends call me Big Phil. Remember those video dating services from the 80s and 90s? Hi, I'm Maurice. I'm an executive by day and a wild man by night. Penny creates a version of this. A nice bath with some champagne and candles. But for Coco. The 1999 documentary A Conversation with Coco shows Coco and Penny sitting together watching these videos of these male gorillas. Okay, you watch the gorilla. Do you like his looks? When Coco was looking at the videos to pick her potential mate, Coco love. It was a thumbs up, thumbs down reaction. <laughs> she just turned the power There he is. If she liked the gorilla, she would kiss the screen. You kiss him. Do you like him? Good. You like him to visit? And she outright rejected others. Then along came Endume. <laughs> Purr. Indume in Swahili basically means like kick ass stud. Endume is a 400 pound silverback gorilla who lives at the Cincinnati Zoo. And apparently, he's quite the catch. He's a handsome dude. But this dude, he's also got some issues. He wasn't considered a good display animal because he liked to throw feces at guests. Ariel Zimros. This is a show about animals. Project Coco. And Dume, the kick-ass stud, was just that, actually. He had successfully mated a bunch of times. And the hope is that maybe once he leaves the city for the sprawling hills of Woodside, California, where the Gorilla Foundation is now located, that Ndume will sow his wild oats there, too, and start a family with Coco. But when he shows up at Coco's door, Coco doesn't seem interested anymore. He's not like her. Like, he was more gorilla. She was more person. 
you're not the first person to refer to Coco as being more human than Gorilla. She was raised human. Like that, I think that Penny saw her more as her child. You know, she put clothes on her. That would, that would, that's very frowned upon now, but back then it wasn't. Lisa Holiday worked at the Gorilla Foundation for a few years as Penny Patterson's personal assistant. I was more nervous to meet her than anybody I've ever worked with, to be quite honest. Like, the go-go. In the many like, years really? that Lisa has worked as a personal assistant, she's had a lot of famous clients. Many who are actually too famous to name. And she's also met a lot of celebrities. But Coco has always stood out to her. I came home and I was like a ball of nerves for days. I'm like, that was amazing. She purred at me. She like took a leaf from me. I'm like, it's, it's, it's intoxicating. It really like, it is incredible. Lisa was around Coco all the time. When I think of Coco, I think of her as like human mentality of a two to four year old, but also had like the moodiness of a pure woman adult. The girl's hilarious. Like, she's, yes, she was so funny. Do you miss her? Oh, I miss her tremendously. I, I have so many stories. I loved her. I loved her so much. It's all bittersweet. It was the best for a lot of reasons, but also the worst. I mean, it still haunts me, so <laughs> it's probably it should be on the worst list. After Penny left Stanford, she continued her research with Coco in Woodside, California, and then stayed there for decades. In 1976, Dr. Patterson, Dr. Ron Cohn, and the late Barbara Hiller established the Gorilla Foundation in Woodside, California. This is the place where Penny's work went from being a study of language as part of her PhD to something more, and where new questions about the project start to surface. The Gorilla Foundation is a nonprofit organization designed to support the continuation of the language study and, more importantly, to create a secure future for gorillas, both in captivity and in the wild. Woodside is pretty rural, mostly forests, and there are a lot of rich people's second or third homes there. Is this it? That's oh. The end of the outdoor enclosure of the. Gorilla Foundation, right? This past spring, Dale Jarossi and I made a detour on our way to his family's ranch. And we stopped at the Gorilla Foundation. And honestly, this place kind of sneaks up on you. It's on a curve, on a hill, and it's surrounded by these tall trees. And if you didn't know it was there, you'd miss it. Uh, that's a redwood tree right there. And sort of tucked in behind the vegetation is the very large outdoor enclosure where Coco and Michael... And in Dumi, at one time, all three of them were living there. I only got to peek at it. We didn't enter the premises. We asked to make an official visit, but the Gorilla Foundation told us no. So this driving up to the entrance, that was it. I saw an enclosure from a distance, and Dale told me that that's where they kept the gorillas, with the trailer attached, behind a bunch of trees. Looking for a place... Uh, and then, as we were backing out of the driveway... And she had come up... Jeez, oh. we just made a connection with a tree. Dale backed into a tree. Oh, boy. Are you okay? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm Good. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, Do you want to check on the, the car, or, the or are you all right? At the Gorilla Foundation, Penny's work with Coco isn't just about teaching Coco more signs. The stated goal is to help gorillas 
as a species. We had a small yard and a large yard, and they were divided by a gate. Megan Dunn worked at the Gorilla Foundation starting in the late 90s. And then there was a shoot for getting into their um, trailers where the gorillas lived and spent the night. After Penny had established the foundation, she hired all kinds of people to manage the gorilla compound round the clock. People with biology degrees and some zoology degrees. And as the years went by, sometimes just like random Coco superfans. While reporting this story, I talked to people from all walks of life who staffed the foundation during the time that Coco lived there. What's your reaction when you find out that you got the job? Oh, I was, I was really excited. I mean, In 2010, John Safko was hired to be a night monitor, which means preparing the gorilla's dinner, helping put them to bed, and sticking around for a bit in case they need anything. And it was like my first day. Penny said, okay, this is unusual, but Coco wants to meet you. The enclosure has what we call mesh, metal, you know, bars, vertical and horizontal. And then Penny said, why don't you just stay here with Coco and and get to know her a little bit? And then she left me alone with her. And this was like, wow, I cannot believe I'm sitting here with the Coco. She's like feet from me and we're sitting here looking at each other. And I don't know sign language, but we're still connecting. I felt like this is going to be really a good relationship. I mean, you basically were like uh, the baby monitor. Elise Dubuisson was another person hired to be a night monitor outside Coco's enclosure. You just had to sort of sit there and and if Coco needed something, she'd come over and she'd ask to, you know, smell your breath or whatever it was that she was asking for for that moment. And then she'd go back to sleep. So all these people are coming to the Gorilla Foundation to help take care of these gorillas. And they're being given very specific instructions on how to handle Coco and prepare her food. Take pistachios. Coco apparently loves the ones from Trader Joe's. But not all of them are delicious. Some of them are old and crunchy. And so you would have to sit there and sort through pistachios and put them in these tiny little containers. This is routine caregiving at the Gorilla Foundation. Sorting through pistachios to make sure Coco, God forbid, doesn't get any of the old and crunchy ones. Because otherwise... She wouldn't want to eat them again for like two weeks. When I talked to folks who, over the years, worked closely with Coco, the overwhelming take is that Coco was kind of a brat. One person I talked to even called her, affectionately, bitchy. Penny saw Coco's perceived brattiness as a good thing, a sign of Coco's intelligence. She enabled Coco to be (laughs) a little tyrant at times. She told National Geographic magazine that she believed Coco being contrary or bratty, quote, may indicate intelligence rather than its absence. To Penny, it also seemed to indicate a mastery of language, that Coco could express herself or respond to a sign in order to annoy or trick. Coco apparently once described herself as a stubborn devil. I mean, who among us, right? Penny's defense of Coco's actions and behaviors caused friction. There would be like, oh, she's crazy and she doesn't know what she's doing. Lisa Holiday says that as Penny's assistant, she sort of became a mediator between Penny and the rest of the staff. Because they'd get frustrated with her and me trying to like say, no, it, this is where it's coming from. Um, her intentions are really right. 
they might be misdirected and it might be, I can see I perceive it that way, but that's not what she's intending. And then also protecting her from that scrutiny. But it went beyond just being allowed to be a brat or being picky about pistachios. There were some strange things. This is Anne Southcombe, who worked on the Coco Project in the early years. Coco, as she got older and sexually mature, I think maybe at six or something, was not interested in gorillas. She was interested in humans. So how did that happen? She was very curious about the human body. Coco asked all of us to see our nipples. That happened to everybody. I sort of took it as like, well, that's your choice if you want to, and it's your choice if you do. And I would let her see, like, if she wanted to look at mine, she could. It was no big deal. I didn't find any issues with it. But after a while, Coco's obsession with nipples, it becomes an issue. Are you familiar with the term nipplegate? Yeah, very familiar with nipplegate. That's after the break. That was her favorite thing, was to pinch nipples. <laughs> Aunt Southcombe told me about this one time they were filming with a news crew. She was pinching my nipples. <laughs> and I wanted to bang her and stop it. And I couldn't do anything. And it hurt, you know. I couldn't slug wow. her or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like such an absurd situation to be in. It was. It was. And, like some of the other staffers, took the nipple thing in stride. But in 2005, things change. Two staffers actually sue the Gorilla Foundation for sexual discrimination. They say that not only did Coco ask to see their nipples, but that Penny encouraged them to show her. One of the staffers claimed that Penny said, quote, Coco, you see my nipples all the time. You're probably bored with my nipples. You need to see new nipples. The two staffers were fired. They claimed that it was because of their refusal to partake. Now, we asked Penny and the Gorilla Foundation about this. They say that these two staffers were not pressured. The foundation says the staffers were offended and then they didn't show up to work. So that's why they were fired. The lawsuit was settled out of court. For Penny, it seems like the nipple thing somehow wasn't a big deal. She was so profoundly emulsified in this being that in her mind it was not inappropriate. It was not sexual in any way. She did not understand why it was an issue. Staffers were also concerned about other things. About not only the workplace dynamic, but also how the gorillas are being taken care of. And the stakes were clear here because a few years prior, Michael died very suddenly. I had gotten to work that day and gotten out, I think, his his breakfast or his meal and woken him up. He was in the small yard. Megan Dunn was with Michael when he collapsed. I came into his trailer. He kind of reached for me and fell backwards. According to Megan, the staffers try calling the nearby zoo. They can't get there in time. So they call 911. But the operator says they can't help a gorilla. Meanwhile, Penny went in with another keeper and started performing CPR. 
Penny, I think, did it first, and then um, she was getting too tired. And then each keeper just kind of took a turn doing CPR because their mouth is so big. We closed his bottom jaw and closed his mouth and would breathe into his nostrils, which are just huge. So we could form a seal around his nostrils to breathe in and fill his lungs with oxygen. The Gorilla Foundation says Michael passed away that day from a heart condition called cardiomyopathy. He was 27 years old. Gorillas in captivity usually live to between 40 and 50 years of age. Michael's passing was rough on the staff, in part because he was just so beloved. He would make raspberry sounds, um, and he would, like, laugh, and he would hide under blankets. To hear a giant gorilla start laughing because you're teasing him, I'm like, Mike, I can see you under the blankets, you know, and he'd laugh and laugh and kind of roll around. (laughs) He had what I called a sweet soul. And Southcombe. I've been around gorillas for a long time, and nobody had that inner beingness that Michael had of all of them. After Michael's death and the very public scandal tied to Nipplegate and the allegations of sexual discrimination, the Gorilla Foundation continues to do its work, mainly taking care of their two remaining gorillas, Coco and Indume, and raising awareness on behalf of gorillas in general. But, according to staffers we spoke with, things behind the scenes don't improve. I just want to pause here and say that we reached out to a ton of people who worked at the Gorilla Foundation over the years. We wanted to understand Coco's full legacy and the evolution of this experiment that began as a way to bridge the communication gap between us and non-human animals. You should also know that Penny Patterson and the Gorilla Foundation maintain that a number of the people we talked to in this episode, especially those who worked there after 1999, are, quote, unhappy former employees. That said, these are the stories we were told and were able to verify. The Gorilla Foundation relied mainly on a membership program, meaning individual donors would keep the place afloat. And so the foundation spent a lot of time reaching out to everyday people, asking them to donate in support of various efforts, like helping them open a gorilla sanctuary in Hawaii. In Hawaii, the Maui Land and Pineapple Company has donated 70 acres for a tropical preserve that will provide the gorillas with greater freedom. Penny hopes a nearby interpretive center will inspire visitors to conserve habitats for gorillas and for all the world's species. Penny and Ron and Gary were all over social media all the time asking for money for the sanctuary. But it never opened. When we asked the Gorilla Foundation why, they said they needed another five to ten million dollars to actually finish the project, but that they still have this lease until 2058. So they actually do hope to open it up in the future. And the Gorilla Foundation told us that they could have done a better job of explaining the details of the Maui sanctuary to their staffers. We looked through their 990 tax filings and nothing particularly stood out to us other than Penny takes a yearly salary of about $16,000. But staffers who work there 
did start to get concerned about some things going on, particularly having to do with Coco's health. I would put her closer on the end of of feeling like she was she was overweight, but she also had no muscle mass because she didn't move much. I mean, she stayed in her little room and she'd move from one end to the other, but she sat most of the day. When we asked the Gorilla Foundation about this, they said that as Coco aged, she slowed down and didn't always want to be very active. The beginning of the end for me personally was um, the pills that we were required to give Coco. She would take close to like 30 to 40 pills a day. Um, that was another thing that night monitors were in charge of doing was creating the little packets of the the pills that she would get. And she would get these plastic bag um, that were like, you know, the like two inch long plastic bags um, filled, like barely could close them. And there were usually about four of those a day that she would take. So we were actually leaked documents outlining Coco's daily pill schedule, which we're told changed often. But holy shit. Um, first of all, that 30 to 40 pill estimate is actually accurate, not an exaggeration. Coco, for instance, took Arnica, which is used for aches and pains and slippery elm, as well as Newton's constipation drops and Newton's constipation pellets. And while Coco did get some pills that are standard for a gorilla, a lot of these supplements she got don't appear to be, at least not by a Western-trained doctor. I actually sent these lists to an ape vet, and they said that they'd never seen this many supplements being given to a great ape before. So this was, in their opinion, unusual. I'd found some notes that said that she had given Coco no-dose, the, the like caffeine pills. She shouldn't be taking those. We asked the Gorilla Foundation about that, and they said that this only happened one time to treat a headache. When I told the veterinarian about this answer, they laughed. They said that diagnosing an animal with a headache is hard, but that usually ibuprofen works just fine. So I guess the big question here is, why was Penny giving Coco so many supplements? She had a, like a healer person that she would talk to. Penny used uh, a psychic to uh, pick all of the like natural supplements that Coco was supposed to have. This woman was never, never came to the facility, never met Coco. It was all done over the phone. So we've spent some time looking into this. And what we've been able to corroborate is that, yes, Penny talked to a person who wasn't a vet who advised Penny to give Coco these supplements. We are told that her first name is Gabby, but we haven't been able to find out much else. The Gorilla Foundation says that this person wasn't a psychic, but a certified naturopath who advised Penny to give natural supplements to Coco, like Senna for constipation and elderberry to ease a cold. They also said that Penny talked to this person monthly and that their veterinarian approved all of the pills Coco took and that they made Coco feel better. But according to multiple people we spoke to, Gabby held great sway over Penny's decision-making concerning Coco's health. I wasn't impressed with her. I, I felt like she was another one that was piggybacking on Penny, making a lot of money, doing this service for Penny. And it was just too much. That was all hogwash. And it was at Coco's expense. Because Penny believed she understood what was best for Coco. Penny, in some ways, believed they were the same, like they overlapped, that she was very in tune with her. If Penny found herself to be allergic to something, food-wise, 
pill-wise, Coco in turn would have the same reaction. These cherries taste bad to me. Coco's not going to eat them. Like it was always that same thing. Where however she was feeling, of course, Coco felt the same way. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a family that is deeply enmeshed. Yeah. Where you cannot have a different opinion from another member of your family. And it sounds like a really dysfunctional mother-daughter relationship. Yes, it was. It was very dysfunctional. I feel like I just gained so much more insight into how deeply emotionally attached Penny is to Coco mm -hmm. in a way that I don't, I don't think I fully understood that until today. Mm -hmm. And in, in many ways, it makes me feel a lot for Penny. Like, I actually feel like, wow, that must have been really hard. Yeah. Um, but, but to have the people that you cared about, their opinions that you cared about, turn against you, and then all you have left is this gorilla that you love so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds brutal. Yeah. Well, and feeling that people were judging it all the time and not knowing what you would do without her. Patterson rejects the claim that she transferred her likes and dislikes or allergies onto Coco. And yet the closeness between Penny and Coco, it had a domino effect at the foundation. John Safko says that when he questioned Penny about the pills they were giving Coco, he was told that Coco no longer wanted to see him anymore, and therefore he was done working with her. And Lisa told me that this kind of thing was par for the course. The caregivers that Coco didn't like were the ones Penny didn't like. Penny didn't trust. Again, Penny disagrees with this. But it does seem that a circle of distrust developed and miscommunication that sometimes led to a high turnover. When I first started, the whole care team quit due to this dysfunction. I think there were 11 staff members and nine of us left within a few months period of time. If you leave the Gorilla Foundation, you're dead to her. She just thinks you're automatically going to talk bad about her, that you'll have nothing good to say. You're not welcome back. That was not the case for every former employee. But Lisa says after a while, Penny cut off contact with her, too. I gotta say, that sounds really hard. Like, it's painful for you. It is. It was painful. It does hurt because I really had her back. Um, like, and I still do. I... I still care about Penny, and it's still I still worry about her, obviously. Um, and I don't want people thinking bad things about her. Next week on a show about animals. This is Gary Stanley of the Gorilla Foundation, responding to the list of uh, facts, quotes, and questions. I'm um, pretty concerned about some of them, the nature of some of them, and the intent and where this is going. A Show About Animals is a production of Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me, 
Ariel Zumros. Our producers are Julia Nutter and Pete Lang Stanton. Our production assistant is Laylee Risbani. Sound design and original score by Pran Bandy, with additional support by Steve Bone. Annie Aviles is our executive editor. Kate Osborne is our executive producer and the VP of Vice Audio. Special thanks to Maximo Anderson for fact-checking. A show about animals returns next week. If you like what you hear, please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And if you can't do that, hit subscribe. That helps too. 